computers to laptops and tablets and mobile phones. Um, and to desire to sometimes improve ourselves will motivate change in our lives. Like if we want to lose some weight or we want to learn a new craft or a new hobby or something like that, that'll inspire us to change. But in our spiritual lives, God also has a methodology to change us as we seek to be more like Christ. Uh, he says, you know, one of the things that he uses to transform us into his image is prayer, among other things. And so tonight we're going to look at how the Lord worked in and through Paul's humble petition to him regarding the change, the Lord's gracious response to his petition, and Paul's grateful submission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now, dear Lord, and we just ask you just into this place tonight, Father. Help our hearts to be open, Lord, to the changes that you want to speak into our lives and to our thoughts and to our habits and to our behavior, Father God. And Lord, let us uh, desire to make these changes because we want to glorify you, Father, and that it makes us a better fit, a better child, a better mother or, or sister or whatever it is that you want to use us for, Lord. Help us to, to be... Um, adopters and adapters to change, Lord, that we might be more Christ-like in, in who we are and who you desire us to be, Lord. And we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, who I've read several of his books, and you might know him from the Narnia series and the Screwtape Letters and Mere Christianity, he said this about, uh, about prayer in particular and how it changes us. He says, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God. It changes me. That's what prayer was to him. And at that time, Lewis was painfully watching his beloved wife, Joy, succumb to cancer. And even with all of his impressive academic credentials and his discerning spiritual awareness, he knew prayer didn't change God's plan or purpose in his life. His wife was still dying. But prayer changed him to be able to accept and become what God needed him to be, more like Christ and more useful for the gospel. Any change in our character, ladies, must come from the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows best. And that requires humility, submission, and obedience. And Kathy talked about that a lot in her study. We need to be obedient for him to do the work that's needed to change us from the inside out. Second Corinthians is one of four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And two aren't recorded here in the Bible, but they are uh, referenced in some of his other writings. Paul was extremely personal in this letter, and he, he was speaking with uh, very openly with the Corinthians, bearing his heart and sharing things that he hadn't written of before. But in addition to the attacks that were coming on his character, which was the reason for this letter, he was responding to some pretty severe things that people were saying about him, false teachers and false apostles. Paul was experiencing at the same time a perpetual attack against his body as well. And he prayed for the Lord to take away the suffering that constantly hounded him, but God told him to change his perspective instead. So Paul shows us how prayer leads to change from three perspectives. 
as a humble apostle with an amazing vision in verses 1 through 6, in making a humble ask against adversity in verses 7 and 8, and by making a humble attitude, taking a humble attitude of acceptance in verses 9 through 10. So first we're going to look at uh, a humble apostle with an amazing vision in verses 1 through 7. And they read, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. This is an amazing vision, ladies. And Paul really never wanted, as you can see from the beginning of this, not wanting to boast. He never relied on his credentials to validate his authority in his ministry. For all of his Old Testament training, his experience as a rabbi and as a Pharisee, his lineage to one of the noble tribes of Israel, his unique conversion to Christ and by Christ on the road to Damascus, and his authority that was equal to the other apostles, all of these credentials Paul could have used and boasted in in fighting against these adversaries. But he was one of the most humble men called to the ministry of the gospel. He counted all of his past experience and, and, and history as loss compared to what he had gained in Christ. And he had no confidence in his human accomplishments, relying solely on the righteousness he received through faith in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins this passage by saying he has nothing to gain by boasting. The word boast appears about 13 times in the book of 2 Corinthians in various forms. And it appears five times in this chapter alone. And it means to glory or rejoice in something. Paul said, I have no reason to glory or rejoice in anything that I have done or that who I am. In his writings, he consistently points us to Christ as the object of our admiration and respect. He wasn't braggadocious in either his manner or in his attitude. It was all about Jesus. But in this letter to the Corinthians, he had to present his resume of of sorts to, to kind of discredit some of these false teachers who were tearing down his apostolic authority and introducing false doctrine to this church he had so lovingly founded. So he says he won't boast out of pride. However, he wants to share this amazing vision and revelation he received of the Lord. This vision triggered the circumstances that changed his life and his attitude, but not his situation. A person, as you may know from reading the Bible, experiences a vision while they are awake, but they may not always come with an understanding when they have that vision. Revelation that God gives us helps us understand the vision, and here Paul receives both. I I just remember a vision that the Lord gave me uh, several years ago, and it was very powerful and very meaningful and very needful for me at the time. Uh, My brother was not walking with the Lord. He was in a very, very dark place in his life and had been there for very many years. And I remember being here one Sunday, and I was sitting there, and I was, you know, they were doing worship. I just sat here with my eyes closed, just allowing the, the worship to minister to me. And then I just remember feeling like my brother came through those double doors 
he walked down that aisle and he came and he sat right next to me. And I knew that didn't happen, but it was so real to me. And I felt, thank you, Lord. You've given me, because I've been praying for years for his salvation, for him to come to the Lord, for him to be saved. He's my only brother, you know, he's all I had. And Lord gave me that vision and it changed me. It changed how I prayed for him. It, it encouraged me. It, it gave me more energy and more fervency for my brother's salvation. It wasn't, you know, heaven, <laughs> but it was heavenly in that it gave me new hope and it gave me new courage. And from that day on, um, my theme song will continue to be Mighty to Save. He can move the mountains. He is mighty to save because he showed me. And about mm, maybe two years after that, my brother came to the Lord, and he's serving the Lord today and loving him. And so I know that God can give us visions, and I know that they can change our perspective in terms of how we approach whatever it is in our lives that we're dealing with at that time. And for Paul, this was one of several visions that the Lord had given him during his incredible ministry to encourage and direct him. And, and there are several of those visions that are recorded in the book of Acts, Galatians, and Ephesians. But Paul waited 14 years to tell anybody about this amazing vision from God. So if anybody could keep a secret, my money would be on Paul. Because he held that. He never shared that with anyone until this letter. Paul himself was unsure whether he was taken to heaven bodily or in his spirit. He was harpozzled, suddenly snatched up. It's the same word that we use to describe the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And although he couldn't share the particulars of his vision, he could share the impact that it had on him and why it qualified him in, in, in a distinctive role as an apostle of God, the physical cost of that calling and the spiritual change that it made in his life. He was caught up into the third heaven or into paradise, which is an ancient reference to heaven. And the first heaven is earth's atmosphere that we can see. You know, it's where the birds and the clouds exist. And, you know, we are, we're very familiar with that. We look up into the first heaven every day. The second heaven is what we would call outer space. And it's, you know, where the sun and the moons and the stars and all the planets are. But the third heaven... The third heaven is God's dwelling place. Moses prayed to God in Deuteronomy 26, 15. He says, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people, Israel. It's also where as believers, we long to be one day and where Jesus had made plans for us to join us. Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. That place is heaven. So heaven is both real as a dwelling place for the Lord and as a destination for us as believers. Commentator Warren Wearsby observes, he says, thanks to modern science, men today have visited the heaven of the clouds because we fly above the clouds in airplanes and those kinds of things. And we've also seen the heaven of the planets because we've actually walked on the moon. But man cannot get to God's heaven without God's help. God gave Paul this amazing vision, an experience his accusers could not profess to have had. He got an amazing sneak preview before actually joining Jesus in the dwelling place of God. We also have a view into what heaven is like if we read and know the word of God. 
And that's part of the, the, the pieces of change that God uses, his word. It's our hope and our future home. I don't have time to, to share here all of the various references in the Bible about heaven. That would make a great study this summer, you guys. Just take your concordance and just start, you know, doing a study of heaven. But I do remember one of the first books that I read as a new believer, and I was a very baby Christian, was about heaven. I think it was a Johnny Erickson Tata book called Heaven, My Real Home. And, man, I got a hunger for that place you would not believe just from reading some of the descriptions that she put together in the book of what heaven would be like. And if you know anything about Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, she was uh, became a quadriplegic at the age of 16. So she really has a heart for heaven because she's looking forward to living there in a glorified body, to be able to walk again, to be able to, to, to move again freely. So her visions of heaven taken from the Bible are just incredible. And I think you would be so blessed if you spent some time just studying it. But the bigger question is, is are you prepared to go there yourself? If you breathed your last breath right now, would you be assured that you would be going to heaven tonight? Would you be assured that you would be going to the dwelling place of God, to the place that Jesus has prepared for us? Have you humbly confessed and turned your, from your sin and given your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior? And if you haven't done that yet tonight, ladies, I really, really encourage you to do so at the end of the study. But Paul continues in verse 5 and 6. He says, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Now, apparently it was fairly common for Jewish rabbis to teach uh, when they were teaching to refer to themselves in the third person. You know, Paul says, I can't talk about that other guy, that, that man in Christ, but I can talk about myself, but I can't talk about myself except if I talk in my weakness and frailties. And earlier in this same uh, uh, book, he, he makes it clear that he would rather boast in the things that make him weak, but that glorify God. Uh, chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, he says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. He's not trying to take credit for any of the work done through him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to do that would only make him appear foolish, he says. So he exercises restraint, although he would say that would be whatever he would say would be truth. But he doesn't want to be like those other guys who are out there trying to destroy his reputation. I kind of got the picture of, you know, the presidential elections. And, you know, you got these people just nah, 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 just backbiting each other. It's, it had to be, you know, something that he just really found very distasteful. He doesn't want to be like them. Bragging would be something that they would do and in, and in an untruthful way at that. And he didn't want them to have any cause to think that he was anything like them. When others attack our character or try to tear us down, belittle us, or just plain aren't nice, are we humble in how we respond? I know I'm not. I get attitude quick and in a hurry. And then I have to check myself or I have wonderful sisters in the Lord that check me. But we need to be humble and give God glory for any spiritual or material blessings that we have. Proverbs sixteen nineteen says, better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. 
Proverbs 29.23 says, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. We need to step back, give grace, and don't let our flesh get in the way of the work the Lord is doing to bring us to an even greater level of Christ-likeness. What did Jesus do when people attacked him? He thought nothing of who he was or where he came from. And Paul actually uh, exhorts us in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death on the cross. We should follow Paul's example of a humble apostle with an amazing vision who would not exercise his rights as an apostle, but was humble even in his defense of his reputation, changed from the man he once was, a proud Pharisee, to an apostle of Jesus Christ. Knowing the amazing promise of heaven God has for us, we should also allow him to change us and not feel it's necessary to defend ourselves because of what the world thinks of us. We are different, ladies. We should be. We have been changed and set apart by God. Romans 8, 29 says, He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. In light of heaven before us, we should embrace the change God wants to make in us. This vision of heaven changed Paul for the rest of his life. And then he moves on with his humble ask against adversity in verses 7 through 8. And it says, at least I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Paul may not have known whether or not he physically or spiritually went to heaven, but he knew his revelation was so great that it was necessary for God to keep him from getting puffed up with spiritual pride. Now, you have to recall that, you know, over those 14 years since the vision, he had been humbled through a number of other ways. He had gone to prison. He had been in the deep. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten. He had been run out of town. So not much had not happened to him to humble him. And through all those years of hardship, he also had this additional companion, a thorn in the flesh from the Lord. Ladies, God knows our hearts and our tendency for our flesh to be proud and puffed up with much less than what Paul was privileged to see. In Proverbs 16, 18, and 19, he reminds us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Pride prevented Moses, who once glowed with the Shekinah glory of God, from entering the promised land because he pridefully struck the rock. Pride reduced an arrogant Nebuchadnezzar, who was ruler over the greatest kingdom of his day, to crawling around like an animal. Pride blinded the Pharisees and religious leaders from accepting their Messiah had come. Pride prevents people from receiving the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And pride keeps some who have accepted Christ from living in freedom and a joyful life. Pride prevents us from changing our perspective. 
it blinds us to the truth about ourselves and the work that God desires to do in us. God never rewards pride, but he does give his gift of grace to the humble. If the Father God required his son to be humbled in order to use him for his purposes, how much more does he require it of us? Even as a godly man, Paul was still a man. And having seen and heard the things he did, he could have totally been ruined for the ministry. So I kind of call Paul the Job of the New Testament when you think about it. I mean, he had physical adversity and he had personal adversity. He had boils and he had friends and a really, really not nice wife. Remember, she says, curse God and die. Can you imagine? You're in physical pain already. You have these friends that are questioning your righteousness and your blamelessness before the Lord. And then you have a wife that is asking, just telling you to curse God and die. Paul had the same thing, except in a New Testament way. He had a thorn in the side, some physical infirmity. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation of what that could have been and what it might have been. But he also had the adversity of all of these people, these opponents that were, you know, coming up against him and that were discrediting him. So he's kind of the Job of the New Testament. God allowed adversity in Paul's life to keep him humble and to balance his spiritual privilege with personal pain, just as he did with Job. The word thorn means a sharp stake, and it's probably comparable to the types of spikes or stakes that Paul was familiar with in his tent-making profession. It's something which frustrates and causes trouble in the lives of those that it afflicts. The word buffet means to hit with your fists like, you know, fighters do when they're pummeling each other in the, in the ring. And, and the deliverer of all of this grief and trouble to Paul was Satan, who God had used to test just as he did his servant Job. Satan was the promoter of opposition that Paul faced from the very beginning of his ministry. So Paul was used to that kind of adversity. The physical pain was now in addition to his human enemies. And it was in the flesh to temper the human tendency toward pride and arrogance that we all have. Paul says there was given to me or that God literally gifted me or given, meaning didami, him with some type of physical suffering to keep him humble and increase his usefulness to the Lord. He never says, woe is me. I got stuck with this thorn in the flesh. But he says it was given to me. We've seen God allow physical adversity to impose restraints or strengthen the faith of those he loves. For those believers who don't think suffering is a part of Christian living, they haven't looked at the life of Paul or at our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think this is one of the biggest ripoffs of those, you know, faith healing ministries is because they tell you, well, you know, you shouldn't be suffering if you have sin in your life and blah, 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 blah. That is such a lie from the pit of hell, ladies. Because suffering is common to man, as Jesus tells us. It doesn't prepare believers for the suffering that's inevitable in life or that God may allow in our lives in order to make a change. Who went to the retreat here this weekend? Oh, amen. Praise God. Who came back to battles? (laughs) Really? Yeah, me too. Hard stuff. Hard stuff. Does it mean that, you know, we came back full of sin and and unrighteousness? No. 
we got filled up with the word of God. We got filled up with, with learning how to walk with God. We got filled up with his promises and expectations. But we came back to battles and diversity and adversity. So these things are common to us, and they also come against us in a very, very spiritual way. But Jesus warned his disciples, and he warned us in John 16, 33, and says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He didn't say we wouldn't suffer. Instead, he said we were to have our peace in him because he had already overcome the worst consequence of any suffering, and that's death and an eternity separated from God. This is the promise that sustains us through tough times, even until death. Kathy also mentioned the other week that God allows battles in our lives to test our faith. She also said some of our battles are a result of choices we've made versus ones God uses to mature us in Christ. And the same principle applies in suffering. Like common grace that falls on the just and the unjust, we will have a certain amount of common suffering because we live in a fallen, imperfect world where sin causes strife, conflict, injustice, and disease. And that's just the reality of where we live. And God, who has ultimate sovereignty over all things, allows these realities to test our faith and to build and mature us, to change us, to trust him and become more Christ-like. We must humbly surrender to what the Lord determines is needed for our spiritual growth and change. Wayne Stiles, in his book, Waiting on God, says, Waiting on God usually means hanging on until he changes our circumstances. The trouble is, God is seldom in a hurry. Instead, God often allows our circumstances to stay the same or even worsen while he waits for us to change. He says, we want God to change situations. God wants us to change in them. We want relief. God wants repentance. We want happiness. God wants holiness. We want pleasure. God wants piety. And guess what, ladies? God always wins. Suffering can also come from bad decisions and foolish choices we make that lead to unfortunate consequences. You know, sometimes they're health issues from past alcohol or drug abuse back in the OBC days. Uh, our diseases that we carry from uh, sexual promiscuity, uh, tax or legal difficulties due to lying or deceit in some of our old IRS filings, single parent or broken families, you know, due to adultery or, or, or fornication. These are some of the sufferings that come from willful disobedience. And in his infinite grace, God forgives our sins. But in his divine government, he must permit us to reap what we sow. But in the reaping, we learn to depend on him and change in the process. Because, you know, repentance is a change. You know, when it says repentance is to turn away from your sin, well, when you turn, you're changing direction. And every time we turn from a sin or we confess a sin, we're turning, we're changing our attitude and our position in Christ. The goodness of God is that in Christ, even in our own failings, his grace and mercy get us to a higher place in our spiritual walk and progress. And if we are humble enough to see it and allow his work to take hold, he will do the work himself. 
Regardless of our past, we can trust God's exceedingly abundant grace to love and love to not only save us, but also to change us to be useful in his kingdom. Paul was humbled through the gift of the thorn in his flesh, and this gift was given by a loving heavenly father to forge a humble and obedient servant for the great work he had for him. And Paul could see this more clearly on the other side of this trial. If you uh, kind of look at a chronological um, study of the books, he wrote Romans after this. And he says, not only do we have peace and joy and hope in the Lord through faith in Christ Jesus, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Trials change things, ladies, and instead of seeing suffering from a woe-is-me viewpoint, we need to see it from God's point of view of what he wants to change in us. I recently found this quote, and I really, really loved it. It says, a real sign of spiritual maturity is looking to God for purpose and perspective instead of comfort and convenience. Maturity implies that there is growth and change in our lives. It makes humility, it takes humility to see God's hand in our trials, to see how he wants to mold us and shape us, to change us, and for us to ask the really hard question of what part of my character, my attitude, my thought processes need to change to become more of what God needs in me. And that's a hard question to ask yourself, because when we're going through hard times and those waters are deep and almost overwhelming us, It's very difficult to say, okay, God, how's that working for me? Because it's not working for you at all. But we're to ask ourselves that question because Paul did. He had to. And now we come to Paul's prayer for God to change his situation. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it may depart from me. In complete surrender, Paul begged the Lord to remove this distress from him, just as Jesus asked his father three times to remove the cup of the cross from him. In both cases, it served God's purposes for these highly favored and beloved men to bear the suffering for the greater good of his kingdom. It's not often we can see the benefit that could possibly come from the ashes of pain that we suffer, but God uses, but God gives us beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness as we go through our tribulations. God answered the prayers of both Paul and Jesus, and the answer was the same. The fathers will be done above their own. So they obediently changed their perspectives to conform to his will. Psalm 119.28 says, My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word another piece of the puzzle of what God uses to change us, his word. And that's the key to finding strength in the Lord, in his word, and no place else. Spend extra time in the word, especially when going through trials and suffering. That's the only way you're going to get through it. God's promises are there. We don't live on explanations. We live on promises. And if you did go to the retreat or you're going to get the CD pack, Great expectations are all about the promises of God that he keeps. Our feelings change, but God's promises never change. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, how did he respond to Satan? He said, it is written. It is written in the word of God. 
His word is where he speaks to us, comforts us, guides us to the hope we need to bear whatever life throws at us and tells us how to change our thinking and our behavior to glorify God. Does that mean we don't cry out and we don't plead with God to relieve our suffering? Of course not. I mean, that's very natural. But the Lord will answer. Psalm 138.3 says, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Does it mean that the journey isn't tiring and exhausting? God knows better than that. Isaiah 40.31 says, But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Does it mean that he runs out of resources to help us? Never. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 3, 13 through 19, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Does it mean that we are alone in our suffering? Absolutely not. Romans eight sixteen and 17 says that the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Suffering is the crucible where faith is forged because it brings us to our physical and spiritual needs before the Lord. It's to change our perspective toward what God wants to change in us. So you have to ask yourselves, what thorn in the flesh are you carrying today that God is offering you grace to endure and change from? Might be physical, might be, you know, life-threatening. It might be a person. Or are you suffering, you know, because people like adversaries in life bring us problems, like a difficult marriage, like rebellious children, Strife and tension constant in your home and you feel desperate to know God's reason for these difficult relationships. You've probably prayed many times for God to take it away, take it away, fix that person, relieve this pain. But his word tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But we have to be willing to come before the Lord in meekness and recognize our blessings come from transformation not substitution. Paul wanted God to replace the pain with healing, to trade his vulnerability for vitality, but God wanted a transformational change in his attitude. Romans 12, 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Remember, ladies, that the one thing that's constant in our lives is change not going to stop even in our life with Christ but we are all being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord the thorn may not be over may not be removed by the Lord but he will provide sufficient grace so that it works for us and not against us in order to transform us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. 
for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Change doesn't stop, even in the Lord, because he wants us to make us more and more like him. Paul was desperate, but he wasn't demanding. He pleaded for the thorn to be taken. He didn't tell God, look at what I've done for you, God. How can you make let this happen? But he came to God and he begged to be considered. And I just, the old school song, okay, I'm going back a little bit. Some of you guys probably don't, have never heard this. It was by a group called The Temptations. And the name of the song was Ain't Too Proud to Beg. And he was, and the, the character in this song was not too proud to beg, just like Paul was not too proud to beg for relief from the Lord. But the Lord changed Paul's perspective through adversity, humility, and prayer. When we come to the Lord and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're giving him rule and reign over every aspect of our lives. We're saying, you're the boss. Do what you will. Surrender my will to yours. I humble myself before you. We're saying, in essence, change me. Paul made a humble ask against adversity because on the road to Damascus, he gave his life and his will to the Lord. And from that day on, he was no longer the man he once was. He was transformed and being changed from glory to glory, just like us. It doesn't mean we don't ask the Lord to take away suffering in our lives, but it does mean that we consider how God is using our adversity to change us to be more Christ-like and more dependent on his strength instead of our own. And lastly, we see how God responded to the prayer and Paul's humble attitude of acceptance in verses 9 and 10. And here's where we see a transition that Paul made in his perspective. Because God responded, my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. He took on a lot. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Once Paul saw it from God's perspective and received God's assurances, he could accept God's methods for change in his life. He could now proudly bear the adversity because he would have the power of Christ to enable him. Remember I said earlier the secular methodology is enablement? Well, that's what we have through, through Christ Jesus. We have his power. And that, that word is dynamis in the Greek. That's the word for power, and we get our word dynamite from it. So Paul, I just, you know, think about this huge force within him through Christ that he would have available to him, the dynamite of Christ's power working for him to endure his sufferings. So he goes from pleading with God to taking pleasure in the gift of God. This was a total change of attitude from suffering for 14 years, pleading three times, to turning it around, to praising it. If every good and perfect gift comes from above, and if Paul's thorn in the flesh was given to him as a gift from God, then grace, which is also a gift, was the answer to his prayers. If grace saves us, it is more than enough to sustain us. Jesus paid the price for us to receive grace as the means for our ongoing sustainment and transformation. 
And at the point Paul recognizes that the suffering is for his strengthening in the Lord, he gladly accepted his situation and the gift of grace it provided to reveal Christ's power in his life. God wanted Paul to have a change of attitude, not a change of situation. Paul's humble acceptance came from realizing grace would enable him to live beyond his feelings and circumstances wrapped in the unfailing grip of God's grace. And that acceptance caused him to express praise and adoration that God was working for him, not against him. That the Lord was lovingly changing something that would bring him closer to Christ's likeness in strength, not weakness, in humility, not humiliation. So what can we take and apply from, from Paul's experience? First, that humility is the only way to ask, appreciate, and accept the changes the Lord desires in order to reveal his power and make us more like Christ. Second, that when it comes to growing in Christ-likeness, the spiritual is much more important than the physical. Give God the benefit of the doubt and ask the question, what character trait does God want to develop in me, and what change or transformation is he trying to make in my heart and in my attitude? Third, the word of God is the way to understand the will of God and to accept it with gladness. Increase your time in the word, especially during those difficult times. He never leaves us or forsakes us in hard times, ladies. He has messages of comfort and encouragement for us, not just to survive, but to thrive through his grace. So just looking back on our entire journey this year, uh, whether we realize it or not, it was a journey of change a journey of change through prayer, a journey of change through figuring out how we uh, get taught to increase our faith through prayer, how we get a humble heart through prayer, how to pray when we are afraid, how to pray with boldness when our hearts are heavy, all manner of ways God has given us that we can change through prayer, which is one of the ways that he does change our attitude and our behavior. I hope your prayers and your life have seen these changes, and I'm excited to see what those changes are going to look like. So let's meet back here in October, and we'll trade stories. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now in Jesus' name, Lord, and we just thank you for your word, Father, and just how powerful it is, how meaningful it guides and directs us, Father, just to... um, to be able to accept the things that you want to do in our lives, Father. And that, Lord, that we can only have the changes that you want to make in our lives by being humble, by being submissive, by being obedient, and by allowing you to fill us with your spirit and through your grace and power, Lord, to be women of God who can walk, Father, in your way and in your word, Lord. I pray for each and every one of the ladies here tonight, Father, that some change has occurred in their hearts, that over these several months, Lord, that you have touched them, you have spoken to them, and you have loved them into a change that you want to make in their minds. So, Father, we just ask you to continue to do your work, continue um, to bend us to your will, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.